This season of Tuna on Toast is brought to you by Velvet Hammer Music and Management Group, and they are all about supporting the arts and loving the arts from the brands and bands they manage like System and Corn to my podcast. These guys chase greatness. I went to lunch with Bino, who owns the company. I thought we were just going to go have sandwiches and catch up, but two minutes in, he said, Striker, Velvet Hammer wants to be part of Tune on Toast. I smiled. I was excited. I shook his hand. I said, Bino, let's do this. Velvet Hammer, appreciate you. Now let's get to our episode. Your name is Striker? Yes, it is. That's fire. (laughs) Wow. I love sandwiches. It's called Tuna on Toast. I, I, I spit... I don't know what I'm doing. I love music, and I love those that create it. Strikers here. Tuna on Toast. Yes. Tuna on Toast. Yes, it feels so good to be back at it. What's going on? It is Striker. This is one episode of many to come, week after week after week. Derek Wibley from Sum 41 is about to join us in a friendly reminder. The episodes are available on my YouTube channel, Tune on Toast with Striker. Spread the word, please. Tune on Toast, your favorite artist, every single week. Yep, Derek came over to my house, and it's so surreal. You hear the knock on the door, and there he is in the shadows. There's Derek Wibley. Can you believe that in 2001, that's when their debut album came out, All Killer, No Filler, and In Too Deep and Motivation, and of course, Fat Lip. And think of all the bands that were huge in 2000 to 2007 and how many of them have gone away. And here we are in 2023 and some 41 is playing to huge audiences. Derek Wibley, he takes the craft. He's very serious about it. He is such a good songwriter. He's such a good performer. We get into so many great stories and early history of some 41 and of course we talk about the present and the future and the double album that's going to be coming out i love when he gets into um how some 41 signed their record deal how did these guys in canada get the this is you know pre-social media etc how did they get the attention of the record labels and then what was it like going from so much success with the debut album and then all of a sudden you got to make the second one does this look infected He's a great storyteller and such a nice guy. Again, I appreciate you hanging out with me, Stryker, on this Tuna on Toast podcast. I love doing it. Love supporting all these bands and the artists. Always surreal when they come over. So without any further ado, please welcome to the Tuna on Toast studio. Here's Derek Wibley. You found it pretty easy, huh? I did. Good. Yeah, wasn't too hard. Good, 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 good. I know the hills well enough at yes. this point. <laughs> You've been in these hills quite a bit, I think, over quite the years. Times. <laughs> check, check, check. Hamburger, hamburger. We've been hanging out for six minutes, but I'll say it again. It is so good to see you. It's great to see you, too. Man, it has been, I think we've known each other easily over 20 years now. Oh, yeah, probably. I'm pretty much like our whole career, right from the beginning. Right from no. the very, yeah. very beginning. And back in like 2000, 2001, 2002, when I first heard your music, I had... Zero percent idea what you guys look like. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you were from Canada, <laughs> but the songs instantly, based on my musical taste, I gravitated towards those tunes. Oh, cool. And what was it like for you guys? And we'll just jump right in. Sure. You're in Canada, and then all of a sudden there's people in the United States, whether it's LA, New York, and everywhere in between, is like, what is this Sum 41? I think I like these guys. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, at first it, we were a band for about four years of just playing around and, you know, trying to make some noise. We're still a high school band, though, so we're kind of just like 
trying to get better. We were really bad, obviously. We are just a basement band. And we just, every year we got a little bit better and a little bit better. And then at some point, there was some record company interests. And basically we made this video. We didn't really send out a demo CD or anything. We made a video, which was called an EPK. And it was just us doing a bunch of dumb shit, you know, just like around our hometown, causing trouble, doing all this stuff, spraying people with squirt guns, robbing a pizza store, and, right. <laughs> you know, egging houses, doing dumb stuff. We, we put our music over all of it. And we just sent that out. And once we sent that out, literally, like, with the next week, there was almost like every label wanted to sign us and was, it just turned into this thing out of nowhere. Okay. Let's get some dates and years going. Sure. In... 99, is that when you were sending them out and got yes. the attention of Island Records? Yep, 99. Okay, so being a garage band and working on music, that was like, what, three years leading up to 1999? Yeah, it, we started the band in 96, and yeah, we just went through so many different members. You do all the high school things. Right, you know, yeah, you yeah, like yeah. 20 yeah. different members before we settle on, you know, the four of us by 99, but yeah. What's so crazy to me and what a dumbbell I am and I realize it now so many of the artists that I have loved over my life were making some of the best songs at 17 18 19 or 20 years old mm -hmm. and that that was you and your bandmates like you were what 19 or 20 when things started going crazy for you we were yeah 19 20 when it when everything started to take off we put our first record and the single went out and it started getting radio play and and then we followed up really quick, quickly with All Killer No Filler. It was only like, I don't know how many months later, but you know, six or eight months later that record came out and then Fat Lip took off and everything. The world, our world was just totally different, you know, ever since. I have questions about how Jerry Finn got involved with that first record, sure. about the speed of everything for your band. But let's just backtrack a little bit and step by step, because these are questions, and as I said, I've known you a long time, I don't know the answers to. Sure. When you were playing in high school, were they always just some 41 songs, or you were playing other bands that inspired you? We were always a band that you know tried to write original songs, but we did play a lot of No Effects covers. No way! Yeah. Cool. We were, <laughs> no Effects was like the band we, we, we started some 41 because we were such big fans of No Effects, and we thought that was the kind of the... the the style of music and the Warp Tour and all that. Like, we wanted to be a band that could be on the Warp Tour, basically. So our favorite bands were No Effects and Pennywise. And we thought if wow. we could sort of, like, take those two influences and turn, you know, our music into something, it would be those two. Did you like how much they were lunatics on stage to go along with the really, at times, I believe, underrated songwriting? Like, they, those guys in both those bands are so good. Fat Mike is incredible. Oh, absolutely. I, but the thing is, we didn't know too much about the band. Mm. Like, we knew only the music. Um, and the music is what spoke to us. We didn't know a lot about what they were like on stage, and we'd never seen them before. And it was, you know, pre-internet, so that we couldn't really find anything out. Like, yeah. it was just, we just had the music and we knew a little bit about you know like no effects was funny they were funny in their lyrics so we knew they were just kind of like you know there's humor there pennywise was a lot more serious a lot harder for sure and but we didn't know fletcher we didn't know all the craziness <laughs> about fletcher uh we just liked the music you know so uh it was only later on as we got to know them and and you know learned much more about both those bands and just all those kind of bands in general so you're playing some of those songs. You're inspired by them. You wanted to be a band that could be on Warp Tour yeah. and be in that scene. Was there any pushback ever from people in your school? Like, 
what are you guys doing? This is so ridiculous. Why oh, are yeah. you doing this stuff? There Absolutely. was. Absolutely. What was that? <laughs> yeah. what, what well, there's no pushback. It was more, I mean, we were, I don't want to say outcasts in school, but we were our only friends. Aww. But we were intentionally outcasts. Like, because we, we didn't think that we were being left out from all the cool people at school. We felt like we were the only cool people in the school <laughs> and everybody else were losers. Yeah. So... It's, we didn't want to hang out with anybody. We didn't want to go to any of those parties or, you know, play on any of the sports teams or anything because everybody we there we thought was lame. So everyone kind of made fun of us, and they didn't – nobody listened to punk rock music at our school at all. Um, so we were – again, we were the only few people that liked that music that felt like that we were sort of the creative ones where everyone was – they were just kind of jocks and just burnouts and, you know, just – Losers. Do you remember how originally punk rock music ended up on your radar? Yes. Um, when I was about 14, the first thing that kind of hit me um, were the Sex Pistols. I didn't really know what it was. I just, again, it was the music. Um, I heard the music for the first time and something just, I don't know, came alive inside of me. Mm. I didn't know what it was. I was just, this band just blew my mind and I they only had the one record and I had the vinyl. Um, I was lucky enough to get a whole collection of vinyl from my mom's friend who was getting rid of all their vinyl at the time. And they just said, here you go, kid, take it all. And wow. so I didn't know what a lot of these records were. I was just going through, you know, it was something like 150 records or something like that. And it became the thing I did in ninth grade. I would come home from school and just go through new records and I'd look at covers that I thought were cool or bands yes. that I'd heard of, but it was, and it was all the great stuff. It was like Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and the Sex Pistols record wow. and just like everything. So that was my introduction to all these bands. And one day I put on the Sex Pistols and it just blew my mind. Who did you grow up with? Was it, did you have brothers? Do you have brothers and sisters? I don't, no. So who was it in your household then? Just you and just me and my mom. Just you and your mom. Yeah. So my mom had me when she would just turn seventeen. Okay. And it was pretty much her and myself. I mean, we did move in with my grandparents a few times because first when I was born, she was so young, she was still living at home. So I kind of my first two years were with my grandparents and my mom at home. Uh, Then my mom got married, and then she got divorced soon after. So I had sort of a a stepdad for a little bit. Uh, but that he was out of the picture pretty quick, so it was mostly just my mom and I. And the records that you got. And that's records. what you look forward to, it sounds like, when you would get home. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so cool also, and maybe this doesn't happen anymore, but you tell me, because in a similar way, if I would go to Tower Records here in L.A., because I grew up here, yeah. a lot of times it was the cover that would intrigue me. And then yeah. when I got a CD, because I didn't have vinyl, when I got a CD... I loved reading the liner notes. Oh, yeah. Like, sure. who are these people thanking? Yeah, yeah. You read the entire thing. All the thank yous, like the, who yeah. recorded it, where they recorded yes. it, the engineer, like yes. everything. Yeah, all, all the names, everybody. Okay, so you've got the band going. You're with the guys. You send out this videotape of you guys doing these stunts slash pranks with your music over it. Yeah. Was it only Island Records that gave you an offer, or were there other labels that were interested? No, Island was the last label to come on board. Oh, we wow. we had a, I mean, it kind of turned into this 
bidding war sort of situation. Um, like it started with a couple labels and then word started to spread that there's this band, this, these kids up in Canada yeah. and they did these hijinks and there's, <laughs> you know, their music's catchy and all of a sudden all these labels wanted to come see us. So these labels from the U S U S labels. Well, all the Canadian labels actually turned us down. We oh, went God. to all the Canadian major labels first cause we're a Canadian band. Right. And everyone said, I remember one of them said, you know, worst band he's ever heard. You know, things like that. And so we said, okay, fine. I guess we're going to go try our hand at the U.S. labels then and see how that goes. We didn't really have high hopes. But like I said, it turned into this thing where they wanted to come up and see us. So we picked a local bar in Toronto and we said, okay, we're going to play every Wednesday night at like 8 o'clock. Okay. Whoever wants to come <laughs> see us, that's where we'll be. And we did that for about six weeks. And every Wednesday, it kind of grew and grew. There's more labels coming up. And we were... I mean, we were an unknown band in right. Toronto. We didn't have a fan base or anything. So Was anyone in the crowd going crazy for you guys with excitement? First, there was no crowd at all. <laughs> it was just a few labels that had come up and a couple of people drinking at the bar, kind of annoyed that there's these kids on stage. Right. And then as word started to spread around the town that all these labels were coming up and there's this band that has all this interest, all of a sudden it started getting full. Now, it didn't really ever turn into like mosh pits and craziness because right. everyone's just like, who are these guys? Right. And in those days, we were trying to do the biggest show we possibly could do in on a small stage. Mm. So we, I mean, we were trying to do like an arena rock, like kiss <laughs> kind of show, uh, but like everything's homemade, uh, you know, in this tiny little bar. So we had these trampolines on stage. We had a basketball net on stage <laughs> that we would like do this like slam dunk routine. Yes, yes. And we would have these. You're making viral videos <laughs> before there was YouTube, basically. I guess in, I guess in a way. Uh, but we had like these like fireworks that we could get that we st stuck on the end of our guitars. We have like candles sitting on our amps and we would just kind of like lean into the candles to light them. And then we would start, you know, shooting out sparks and all this stuff. So, you know, it was just dumb stuff. And all of a sudden, every label started just like giving us an offer. Hold on one sec here. Hold on. But you guys weren't even old enough to consume, not that you needed to, alcohol in these <laughs> bars. You were like, what, 18 years old? No, we were consuming. We were definitely. How old do you have to be to drink in? in we have to be nineteen. Oh, 19. 19. How old was Steve? Steve O is a year younger. Okay, he was eighteen. All right, um, but he was. We were all still drinking. I mean, everyone's you're just drinking in the van out back. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> as as you do. So the labels start to get interested. Yeah, you guys are putting so much effort into this. You want to make this happen. You are not being lazy. You are super duper rock stars on stage. Well, the thing is, we were doing this. This is what we did everywhere we went. Mm. We were already doing this before we sent out anything. So we weren't like trying to impress anybody like that was coming to these showcases. We were just like, here's what we do, like it or hate it, you know. And when did you feel like you had traction with the labels here in the U.S.? Well, it started fast. And just the offers just came in right away, you know. So it was the thing that was hard is that there always there was an offer from every label, and like who do you pick? Because they're all big labels, they're all great, they're all capable, they all have big bands. Yeah. And the heads of all those labels are guys you've heard of, you know. And we didn't know what to. Do. So you know, it's like Clive Davis is one at the head of one of them. It's Jimmy Iovine is the head of the other one. Lyra right. Cohen's the head of the right. you know, all these guys that we'd heard of that yeah. are big guys in the business. So what do you do? You know, it, it became really difficult. Was so, anyone guiding you behind the scenes? I mean, 19 year olds, like, are you, do you have a lawyer? Do you have a manager at yes. that point? So we had a manager, oh, cool. we had a lawyer and we had somebody from 
EMI Publishing who had signed me when I was like 17. And these were all like industry guys who have been around and, and they were all guiding us through the whole process. And then when it came to signing the record deal, I yes. looked to all of them. I said, so what do we do? And every one of them said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's up to you. We're like, well, I need some advice. They're like, right. they're all good. Right. You got to pick one. Like, I, so I just, you know, it was the whole band. We started, you know, when, once you start meeting some of these people, you it really becomes down to, it's like a, it's about people, you know, it's who do you get along with and who Who's do you the think, best hang? yeah, who understands the band and who can you go into a project with? That's really what it came down mm. to because they're all capable. Um, and we felt Island had the best people and they were the last people to come on board. They were the last people to offer us a record deal. We almost thought by the time they came in, we thought we were going to go with Interscope and Jimmy Iovine's whole yeah. team. Yeah. Because why not? I mean, they were having so much success at that time. I mean, too. they had everything from like you two and no doubt, just to name a few, yeah. and a million. Like at that time, Limp Biscuit was like the biggest band on the planet, and you know they just had everything, and so it made a lot of sense. Island was a brand new label for because they had merged with Def Jam, so it was Island Def oh, Jam, right? And it was right. all new people, and they hadn't really signed anything. We were going to be the first rock signing for Island Def Jam, so it, it was a huge risk. You know, when you compare Jimmy Iovine, Tom Wally at Interscope sure. to Island Def Jam, which is brand new, even though the whole history of Def Jam, like we loved the idea of being on a hip hop label with, you know, like Def Jam was, had some of the records that we all grew up loving, you know, so it was kind of cool, but again, it, it all came down to the people. Did other rock bands after you signed with them follow suit because of your success? Oh, I have no idea. I bet that's true. <laughs> I, I bet no if we idea. looked at who they signed after that. Well, I mean, they had a lot of success. Um, you know, I think they started riding really high. I mean, they had Fall Out Boy after us. There was the Killers. Yes, um, right, right. Hoobastank was there. Saliva, American Hi-Fi. They all sort of ha oh, started having hits. Yeah, 100%. All right, so now you guys have a record deal. You had all these offers. And it's time to make a full-length album. It's time for All Killer, No Filler. <laughs> yeah. Great title. So what were the steps that led up to recording that and working with the late, great Jerry Finn? Um, well, the first thing that we were going to do once we signed the record deal was record some music. And we went in right away. We signed a deal, and then six weeks later, we were in the studio. Where at? Out here in Los in Angeles? Toronto. In Toronto. Yeah, yeah. we wanted okay. to stay in Toronto. Um, we were very proudly Canadian, and we were like, we're going to work in Toronto. We're going to work at Toronto Studios, and uh, we went in and we did an EP called Half Hour Power. And we had a lot of the songs for All Killer No Filler as well, but we decided we were going to save, you know, I only had about six songs really written for All Killer, so half the record, and then all the songs for Half Hour Power. So we said, let's do that, we'll put that out, and we'll go out and tour, and I'll continue to write. We need about six more songs for All Killer, and... The idea was they wanted us to, Island wanted us to talk to producers. And so they gave us a whole list of names. Okay. And we didn't really feel like we wanted a producer necessarily. Um, but, you know, in a way, Jerry Finn, who ended up producing All Killer No Filler, we almost didn't want Jerry Finn before we'd met him. Just the name, only because he'd done uh, other bands that were 
you know, like he'd done Green Day and he'd done Blink. Right. And yeah. although we liked those bands and liked those records and loved what Jerry did, we kind of wanted to do our own thing. And we felt like it, it, Jerry had already done that, you know, so we were going to either do it on our own or try to find somebody that we had never really heard of. But then we met Jerry. And, you know, the, the label pressured us to at least just meet Jerry Finn. So we did. And after we met him, again, it comes down to people. And right. he was just our kind of guy. And we just got along so well. And he was one of the funniest guys, the greatest guys. And he just Aww. obviously understood this kind of music so mm -hmm. well. So the conversations we were having about the gear and the way we'd record and how it needs to sound and all this stuff, it was just, we didn't look any further. We just said, Jerry's the guy. It's so impressive, I got to tell you. You guys such a young band but also had a backbone and you knew exactly what you wanted to do and was that an easy thing to do or that's just how kind of you were ticking when you're then? young everything's easy because you're not right. thinking about anything yeah, you're just right. doing you know you don't think about any consequences or whatever so you just do what you feel like in the moment so it, we easily could have not met with jerry Right, you know, but we just said okay. Yeah, we'll we'll listen to the label. We'll we'll take the meeting, and then once we met him, it was just as easy to say, yeah, he's the guy. You know, we can just flip because it, it, everything is you're just operating on how you feel in the moment when you're that young. And to a certain degree, I still do today. I mean, I've always sort of just trusted my instincts and trust my gut and how right. I feel. I when I haven't, that's when I felt like things have gone a different way or gone bad for myself. You know, whether it's personal life or in 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 work uh the song fat lip mm -hmm. i think everybody knows it um where did that come along in making the album is that something you had sitting in your back pocket for a while or tell me about fat lip the idea for fat lip had been in my head for a long time i didn't know how it was going to sound i just knew that i wanted to do something like that and I had tried working on it over a couple years. I think from when I was about 17 is when I sort of first had the idea to do a song like Fat Lip. And it never really came to. And then even once I started writing Fat Lip as the song we know now, yeah, it, that song took about a year and a half to complete. Whoa. Because I only wrote little bits of it at a time, and then I would be stumped. And I would just kind of put it down, and I wouldn't touch it for like six months. And then I pick it back up, and I be I would get a little bit further. All of a sudden, I have a chorus now. Oh, okay, great. Uh, and then I'm like, well, it needs a needs a, a bridge or something. So that, but that was like another four months later. I wrote that, so it just kind of came in pieces. <laughs> wow. So you have a lot of patience when it comes to songwriting. It sounds like sometimes if, if you don't I mean, get it right away, you'd be like, I'll come back to this. If if it's showing some promise, there's a lot of stuff I write where I just let it go. You know, it's not that good. I'll work on it for a minute and. If it's not happening, I just, I'll never touch it again. But for some reason, I, the first thing I, I wrote for Fat Lip was the riff, the intro riff. And I knew I liked that. Then I wrote the verse guitar riff, and I knew I liked that. Um, a lot of times I'm writing stuff that I don't think is for a song. Like when I wrote the Fat Lip chorus, I just wrote a chorus one day, and I go, oh, that will work with that thing I'm trying to work on, this, which we were calling at the time punk hop. Okay. And it was like yeah. this, and I was like, I'll work for my punk hop song. So I put that together, and sure enough, it worked. Fat Lip was the punk hop song. Yes. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Was anything, did it feel surreal to you, or what did it feel natural that straight away you guys were getting a lot of success? I don't know what it was like worldwide, but here in Los Angeles, San Diego, and probably all the United States, 
everybody knew who Sum 41 was. I, I mean, it it took off quickly. Once it once it started, it, it kind of went. And yeah, it was surreal. It was very, we weren't expecting it at all. I mean, we were just, we just graduated high school about, you know, a year and a half before that. So like everything happened really quickly once it started happening. Um, and everything was, you know, our whole world had changed completely at the, as soon as that went out. And I remember just being recognized for the first time on the street. You know, once the video started getting played. Yes. Not expecting to be, it had only come out for, a, it had been out for a couple of days. It was the week that it came out. And within two days, I was just walking down the street in Philadelphia and <laughs> people were like, oh, it's you, it's you. And well, the whole band, we were all walking and everyone's like, it's you guys. And oh, that's so cool, like, oh my man. God, we're, people recognize us now. And it's, you know, then that never changed from that moment on. Did you start as an opening band on your first couple tours? Yeah. yeah. And who were you playing with? The first tour that we did, in t- uh, once we were, I think the first tour that we did once we had like a record out, like when we did Half Hour Power, yeah. uh, we opened for Social Distortion, which was Holy awesome mackerel. and also terrifying. Terrifying because, you know, I think they had just gotten back together too. It was like their reunion. And... You know, their fans are a lot older. We were just right. these kids, and nobody really wants to see the opening band. <laughs> they just want Social D. Um, so it was very intimidating, but it was great. It was really good because we did all that stuff that we were doing with the trampolines and all this stuff. And I think at first, like all these older punk rock guys yeah. and girls were looking at us like, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> but then by halfway through, at least half the crowd was kind of like, you know what? It's kind of cool. You know, I don't think they like the music, but they're like, this is actually kind of entertaining. <laughs> but this has been my take on you forever. You have those, you do those things on stage, but the band, you guys are such good musicians and songwriters. <laughs> oh, of course. And you know how to play your instruments. Like if someone was just going up there doing a bunch of tricks and they didn't have good songs, they didn't play their instruments well, it'd be like, yeah, that'd be good for about four years and yeah, see you yeah. later, alligator. Yeah. You guys know what the hell you're doing, man. Or we fake it really well. No, <laughs> one or the other. One no, the other. no, no, no. Did you take music lessons growing up? No. You didn't? No. What the hell? I think that shows. I'm not a very good guitar player yeah, or on. singer. So. And you're good. So no. how'd you learn how to play? I still only know how to play just chords. You know, I'm not, I don't shred around the guitar. I can do some solos and stuff like that. But um, like the Into Deep solo is like the easiest solo you could imagine. It's so basic I'm and simple. Um but, you know, that's the extent of what I could do, basically. Um, but, yeah, I, was, I wanted to learn how to play guitar so I could write songs. That was really the whole oh, goal okay. to pick up a guitar was so I, could, I had these songs in my head and I needed to get them out somehow. So once I learned a couple chords, I was done. I didn't need any more lessons, like, to take lessons or anything like right, that. You right. know? I just had somebody teach me the basic chords. Yeah. You know, it was like my uncle. Right. And then that was that. And then you were on your way to writing hit songs. Just like that. I don't know if they were hit songs for a while, but eventually, I guess. You put up uh, something on uh, Instagram recently talking about a performance at an MTV anniversary, like their 20th anniversary. And this, I'm so excited that we get to chat about this. So for those that don't know the story, it was like MTV's birthday, some 41 plays, and you guys do this incredible medley. Of a Sum 41 song, there's Beastie Boys, there's Motley Crue, and Judas, Judas Priest. Priest. Yep. 
But Tommy Lee is out there, comes out when you start playing the Beastie Boys song, then go to Motley Crue, and then you have Rob come out. Yeah. Um, and you guys were able to segue from song to song to song without missing a beat, playing your musicians. How important was that moment to you personally and for your career? That was like the single most important moment in our career and in our lives at that time because we were a relatively still unknown band. I mean, the song was starting to go, but it wasn't a hit or anything yet. And we were lucky enough to get to be able to play that show, and, and we were the opening of the whole night. So we were such fans of what we'd seen on MTV Awards and things of these like collaborations of artists yes, and stuff yes, like that. Yeah. So when we got to our first opportunity to do something on MTV, we asked them, can we do a medley and ask some other artists to come out? And they were like, great. And... They said, well, who, who do you want to ask? So we had a little list. We said, well, we said Tommy. We said Rob Halford. We said the Beastie Boys. And we asked for Slash. Slash said no. Beastie Boys said no. But yeah. Tom, Tommy and, and Rob said yes. Um, so then all of a sudden we were like, they said yes? So now we got to do this thing? Like how <laughs> we don't, I mean, we just kind of threw that out there. I mean, we didn't think it was going to actually happen. Yeah. Because, again, we felt like we were relatively unknown still. And... We put this medley together. We were still on the Warp Tour, actually, that summer. And so we were putting this whole thing together on the bus while we were off stage, you know, because there's no dressing rooms at the Warp Tour either. Right. We're all just yeah. sitting in our bus with our guitars trying yeah. to figure out this medley. And then we did, and we kind of flew in for the show. We, we didn't really have much time to, like, get it together. We had one rehearsal the night before. So Tommy flew in, and Rob came in, and we had worked on this thing. We ran it a few times. We left the rehearsal thinking, like, I think we have it. <laughs> I mean, we'll see, hopefully. And uh, we, we were lucky enough to get a sound check that day. We ran it one more time. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, it's like, hey, show started. You guys are up. And we just went out and did it. And That's one take, right? Oh, Live? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Jesus you have no Christ. second chance for anything. <laughs> no. no, so you just run out. And we just did it. I remember we were so nervous. So, like, just kind of shaking backstage. I don't think I'd ever been as nervous in my life yet. And we just went out and we did it. And I, fe you always feel when you're on stage that those things don't go well. Mm. You feel like the audience hates it. Like, you're looking at everybody. And it's, for some reason, you're probably only focusing on the people that are just kind of standing there. But it just felt right. like everyone's just like, what is this? <laughs> That's oh, what it felt like. And God. when we came off, everybody was like, that was amazing. We're like, really? It felt like felt like I messed it up and everyone's like, Oh, I messed this part up and I did that. And I'm like, I did this. And you know, and then it just felt like the rest of the night, everyone was congratulating us. Everyone was saying, uh, uh, you know, you have no idea what this is. This is so big for you guys. And we're like, uh, okay. And from the next day, everything sort of took off. Like the video wow. went into heavy rotation. The wow. song went up the charts and yeah. it just kind of went worldwide and it just kind of took off. And it really solidified you guys as the real deal because, well, somewhat rookies at the time, you came out there like veterans. <laughs> I mean, honestly, when you went from, I guess it was fat lip and no sleep till Brooklyn yeah. and you put your guitar down and then you were going back and forth with Steve. Mm -hmm. And then you, for the next song, you went and grabbed a different guitar without missing a beat. Don't stop watching this interview right now, but afterwards, mm -hmm. go watch the video. Like, I get chills whenever I watch it. Oh, cool. It's, I mean, it was so good. And I talked about earlier what a dumbbell I am. I'm going to say it again. I expected that from young bands, but at the time, not realizing how 
incredibly difficult it is. It just seemed like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. You're a young band. You're on your way to a hit song. These guys are good. You get Tommy Lee and Rob Halford, and here you go. (laughs) It's easy. (laughs) Yeah. So congrats on doing that. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, I'm curious, what was the business decision or creative decision on why the second record, at least in my mind and memory, came out fairly fast after All Killer? Yeah, after All Killer No Filler. It was a weird thing. I, for us, we didn't know how the business worked or, or anything. You know, we were just doing what we do and being told, you know, here's your schedule. And just this was the schedule. They said, okay, the tour ends in May. You're going into the studio at the end of June, and the record's going to come out in November, and you, you're playing Reading and Leeds Festival in August, so we're going to start the tour a few weeks before that. Like, there, that was just the itinerary. And I looked at it, and I was like, that's only giving me six weeks to, to write uh, this this follow up record, and I kind of voiced some concern about it, but it just was like met with like this is just what it is. This is it was very like, you know, like welcome to the show. You know, this is what this business is. Here's your schedule. You just do it. So I just didn't really push back on it. I said, okay. I mean, I guess this this is what people do. Uh, I'm gonna try to do that. And I just dove in and started writing songs. The, the day that I got home from tour, uh, I just wrote. All day, all night, I slept like only a couple hours a night. And it was like the worst experience I think I've ever lived through. (laughs) I wouldn't want to say ever, but ever in terms of writing. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, it was torturous for sure. And it was, there was so much anxiety and so much panic and so much self-doubt. And just like, how am I going to follow up this album that sold a lot of records? And I have to have songs that will work on radio and uh, you know, all that, all this stuff, and I'm not sleeping either, so that's making your mind just even more sure. just kind of, you know, trippy. And, you know, then the, the date comes where you're supposed to start, and I'm like, okay, well, I got 12 songs. I mean, let's just go do it. And we just went in, and we only recorded for six weeks. So the whole process was three months. Wow. And then we were out on the road, and the record came out. <laughs> that, that was that. It's a great record. I think it is. Thanks. The Hell Song, Still Waiting, right? Um, Still Waiting was the last song I wrote. I wrote that oh. in the hotel. Cause, so we recorded that song, or the whole record, in New York. Okay. And right as we were leaving for New York, maybe the day before, I, was, I wrote a little bit of that song. I wrote the riff of the verse, and I had the riff, basically the, the main riff, the octave riff, and then the chorus. I wrote all that in like... It just kind of fell out within under a minute. I just kind of started playing wow. stuff, and it was there. And I started singing something, and I'm like, "Okay, there's that's the chorus." And then we went to New York, and I finished the song in a hotel, and I brought it to the guys, and everyone thought, "Oh my god, this is the song. This is this got to be the first single," and it became the first single. Man, are you proud of the record? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm sorry. I mean, that I you... still look back at it and go, "I mean, there's things I don't like about it. I still to this day hate the way it sounded." I don't like the way it was mixed. I don't like the production of it. I just, I wished we would have worked with Jerry Finn again on that record because we only worked with him on All Killer. And at that point, our manager, who was an aspiring producer, had kind of sort of pushed Jerry out and inserted himself in as the producer. And I wish we would have worked with Jerry on that record. That's my only real regret. I do like the songs. I wish I had a little bit more time, but that is what it is. Yes, and now as someone who's a fan of the band and knows your records, it makes me sad and frustrated that record companies, and you're not the first band for this to happen to, but I've had Tom DeLonge here and other bands where it's like they have all the success and it's like get back and you have to do it again and here's the time limit where Mm -hmm. it needs to be done. 
and I, I it has to mess with you and you just talk, mentally creatively your spirits your conflict like all like oh my god and they give you no no time no time is it and and I'm thinking like is that a business decision on their end because oh we've got a hot band here we got to get more music out or like is that the I don't reason know, for it I don't know who's to blame I mean I'm partly to blame because I didn't really speak up enough I know I, I know Island in those days if I would have said to them I don't think I, I can do this in six weeks just give me a couple months they would have I was only speaking through my manager. I don't know what messages were getting relayed to mm. the label. I have no idea. He was only giving me the giving me the itinerary, and I was telling him I thought that was too short. And he was the one to say, "Well, this is just the way it is. Welcome to the big leagues. Go and do it." You know. But and then you put out the record. You did it though. You did it. There are incredible songs. You talk about being on the radio. Yes, radio songs. People are loving you even more. And then a couple years goes by. And it's time to do another one. And that's well, I think we did the same thing. It was like only about a Shock. year later. Yeah, again. Like that. So here you go. Now, the first four came out in f the first it, first four records were in four years, basically. The first oh, yeah. four records in four years. Yeah. Looking back as we sit here today, are you overall? Do you think it helped you overall to do it like that? Then in the moment, it stunk. <laughs> yeah, because well. By the Chuck album, I was sort of used to that pace. I was feeling a little bit burnt out, but I, I think I gave myself a little bit more time. I think I had three months total now to write that record. Um, and I no, I don't look back at that as like, I wish it was different or anything. Like I said, sonically, I wish Does This Look Infected sounded better. And I still think it can. It could be remixed and it could, be, it could sound better. Maybe we'll do that one day. But... Um, the Chuck album sounded better, but still not quite what I wanted it to mm. sound like in my head. Mm. I wasn't enough, I didn't know enough about that part of the recording process to, to articulate how I want the guitar to sound or how I want the drums to sound. And, you know, so some of those things don't sound as good. We're all killer. Jerry knew all that stuff already. He knew how to make it all sound right. good. Right, 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 right. Um, you mentioned Social Distortion earlier that you opened up for them. And yeah. You guys were young. Are there other bands that you worked with out on the road or toured with that you saw kind of how they did their business on the road and you're like, yep, I like that. They treat people well. I like how they're doing everything. Yeah, totally. There was um, like, so the Mighty Mighty Boston's brought us out really early on and they were great with us. I mean, we felt like that tour was great because it was us and then it was Flogging Molly and then oh, Mighty Mighty wow. Boston's and all of us, Stone. the entire tour we're hanging out every single day, every night, and we were all, it felt like one big family, and it was great. And we would all play dice and just, and Dickie Bear would steal all our money every yeah. night. <laughs> and he didn't care that we were the opening band making like 50 bucks a night. Right. He took it all. <laughs> That's awesome. So, and we still play dice on the road to this day because we learned it on that tour. Um, yeah, the offspring took us out, and they're great. They, they were always really, really nice. Right from the very beginning, like they treated us like we were just equals when we were just kids. Oh, that's so you know? cool to hear. And uh, you're about to go on the road with, with the offspring yeah. again and your Canadian friends. Simple uh, plan. It's yes. a simple plan. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So over the years, when you after you tour with a band, is it similar to like actors who are on a sitcom or like all they do is hang out and then when it's over, they don't really talk? Or when Sometimes. tours over, do you like do you stay in contact with Noodles and Dexter over the years? How does that work for you? 
Yeah, I mean, we've we've stayed in contact with the officers. I mean, we've done a lot of touring with those guys over the years. Um, but yeah, a lot, some bands you stay in touch with, some bands you don't. It's just, I don't know. I mean, some bands, like even like myself, like a lot of musicians are kind of shy. You know, some are, are outgoing and some are shy. Um, and it's sometimes like you would like to talk to people, but you're just, you're... Shy people usually feel like that person doesn't want me to talk to them, you mm. know. So you sort of stay back, and then that person feels like uh, they they don't want to talk to me, you know. It's it's that sort of that sort of thing. So some people you stay in touch with, some people you don't. I've been reading about heaven and hell, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen any date on it, but I want to confirm a double album. Some forty one will be coming our way. Yes, it will. And. What does the heaven represent in the title and what does the hell represent? So it's a double record and the heaven side is 10 songs and it's all like our old school Sum 41 pop punk sound. New songs though. New songs that are in the vein of All Killer and Does This Look Infected. Okay. The hell side is another 10 songs that are all in sort of the heavier sort of chuck to what we sort of have been doing lately. Yes. Sort of heavier sound. And so it's 20 songs total and it's pretty much finished. It's almost Oh, it's not mastered, but it's we're in the final mixing stage right now. Somewhat rapid fire questions. Sure. Will you release all the songs at once, or is it going to be like here's one, six weeks later another, six weeks later another? Because there's so many different strategies these days on how to do it. I haven't thought about a strategy. I think that comes when we we get with the entire team, with the record label, and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure there's going to be a song that comes out first before everything just all at once. For the heavier side, for the hell. Yeah. Where are the inspirations coming for that? I don't know. I have no idea where any inspiration comes from because I don't really try to do anything. I just pick up a guitar. Whatever falls out that day is what I'm, I'm writing. I, it's, I don't really think about it. A lot of these songs I wrote by accident. I didn't try to write a, a pop punk album. In okay. a heavy, like yeah. The pop punk stuff came because during the pandemic, all of a sudden, a lot of people were calling my manager or labels were reaching out and saying, you know, so-and-so artists would love to see if you would write with them. And, you know, it just kind of, a lot of people were reaching out for songs and I didn't have any. So I just thought, and everybody was saying, we were looking for like pop punky kind of stuff. So I thought, well, I should probably start writing some stuff. I'm like, I haven't written a pop punk song in 16 years. So I don't even know if I can do it. So I started writing some and I got about three or four and I listened to them all. I go, I like these. I'm like, I was actually, I was surprised how much I like them. And I thought, I don't want to give these away. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but I don't just give them away. I like them. Yeah. So I just kind of held on to them. And uh, I was kind of in writing mode. I don't know. And then I, every time I picked up a guitar, a new riff or a new song would come out. And all of a sudden I had all these songs. I'd already been writing some of the heavier stuff already. Right. Uh, so I had about four or five of those and I just kept going. And all of a sudden I just had 20 songs. And at the time, I didn't know what to do with them. I thought, I'll pick the best 10, maybe, and make an album. And I just went and listened to all 20 in a row. I thought, okay, I'll listen to all the pop punk first, yeah. all the heavy second. Yeah. And these were just demos. I'm driving around, and I get halfway through the, the... I go through all the pop punk song, and I get halfway through the heavy. And that's when it hit me. I was like, I think this should this whole thing should be an album. It should be a double album. But I have to like run it by the guys, see what they think. Sure. So my strategy was, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to send them the music and see what people gravitate towards. See if they say, what's this pop punk shit? Or I love the pop punk shit. Or, you know, what are they going to say? I have no idea. Right. 
And one by one, I would get a call or a text or an email from everyone. Everyone said, what do you think about making a double album? <laughs> so Who everybody- was the first to do it? My prediction is Dave. It was Dave. I knew it. It was Dave. Yes. Yeah. And then Zumo and then Co- like it was just kind of in all in a row. And that's when I knew, well, then there it is. We all have the same idea. Why do you think, of course, because you're a good songwriter, but during the pandemic, there were people reaching out going, hey, can you potentially write some pop punk songs and be a co-writer with certain artists? Has that happened a lot in your career where they ask you for your songs? Over the years, people do reach out, but I think because the pandemic, everyone was just stuck at home and everyone was going to look at that as an opportunity to write music. And it seems like most people don't write songs on their own these days right, so, totally. so it's, it's kind of natural for to look for co-writers i guess and i think I'm, were these established bands or up-and-comers that are a bit of both by pop punk it was a bit of both um but it was a lot of like up-and-coming but they're um everyone seemed to want to do pop punk stuff and i kept thinking like man i haven't written a pop punk song in 16 years i don't even know if i can do it i'm not even of course i know what pop punk is but i don't know if i ever thought you guys were officially a pop punk band at all. I never, I mean, that term. Just because you wore some certain shirts and clothes and plays with certain bands didn't mean you were automatically a pop punk band. No, I've never felt like that, but for lack of a better term, I guess. Okay. um, Because that that didn't even come out. I don't think I ever heard pop punk, uh, you know, being used until around like 2005 or six. You know, that was, I think, the first time I ever really heard that. Um so, I mean, for us, we've always just said we're a rock band because we do totally. lots of other stuff. I mean, we have yes. more heavy music than we do pop punk right. music. So, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what we are. I've never really cared about it. We all, That's why we just say we're a rock band. We do all sorts of stuff. I think during the pandemic, people were just wanted comfort. And if it was listening. Oh, I agree. I, yeah. I, I started to think because I started listening to a lot of the music that I listened to in high school which was like No Effects and Pennywise and Lagwagon, Strung Out, like all these fat records and Epitaph bands. Yeah. Um, and I'd made a playlist. Well, the funny thing is like we had a kid. Our first baby was born like a few days before the lockdown started. So he's as old as the pandemic. Wow. And Congratulations. <laughs> thanks. And so what we would do is like to break up the day, we would go drive around for a couple hours because that's all you could really do. So I would make these playlists. And it seemed like he really would get quiet and liked punk rock music. Right. So I made these playlists of all this stuff I used to listen to. So I was driving around listening to it day after day after day and fell in love with it again. And I think by doing that, it opened up something in my brain to be able to just kind of put myself back to where I was when I was 19, 18 years old, writing all those early records. And I just, naturally started writing songs that fit in that vein. So I didn't really try to do that. It was all by accident. Yeah. Authentically and happening by accident is the way to go. When it's forced, I think the audience is super savvy and they they know. You can't trick an audience. No. Uh, And you and I have seen bands and no bands, we won't say names, who have (laughs) attempted to do that. Oh yeah, for sure. And what happened? It's gone a little sideways. It never works. No. No. Just, you have to do what's in your heart. You have to do what's authentic to you. Or, I mean, and and yes, sometimes you can trick people, but it doesn't last. You know, it always you always pay for it somehow on the other side. Right. As you are feeling nostalgic and listening to those bands, and 
you can say pass on this question if you want. Like, do you think about Steve who used to be in the band? Like, he was your guys grew up together and, you know, not part of the band for a while now. Mm-hmm. But are there okay feelings with him? It's funny. Um, I don't have any bad feelings, but I also don't really think about it too much. Okay. And I, I don't know if that's just sort of <clears throat> the way I am. Um, that once people sort of leave for whatever reason, whether it's good or bad, I'm so focused on what's going on in my life at the moment and where I'm going that I don't really think about people that aren't in my life anymore. Um, And that doesn't mean he never, you know, he'll pop into my mind, sure, and a lot of times I'll see photos or things like that or hear old songs. Um, But I love the band as it is right now. And if I didn't, then maybe I probably would think about how things used to be, but because I enjoy what we do so much now that it just, I don't think about it. That makes total sense. That makes sense. Health wise. How are you feeling as we sit here today? I feel great. You do? Yeah. Yeah. Good. I feel great. Man alive. That was so scary. (laughs) Yeah. It was so scary, (laughs) but you made it through the other side and you're just, you're strong, strong as can be. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, I mean, you have to work at it. Like, I don't just sort of sit around and just, like, eat whatever I want and just be unhealthy. Yeah. Um, I do try to stay healthy and, and, and watch. You know, obviously, I've been sober now. I don't even know how long it is now, but it's almost 10 years. Congrats. Um, but it's that's another one of those weird things that, that doesn't really enter my mind either. Um, and I, I've never really understood it because I was always told, that, you know, it's going to be a daily thing. You're going to probably get to think about it every day, all day, and it's going to be a, a struggle. And I know that is for a lot of people. It just, that hasn't hit me. And I don't know if it will at some point. Like, it's very possible that could. I'm aware of that. But luckily so far, it's like one of those things that's, if it's, it was in the past. So, and I'm so focused on what's going on now that I don't really think about alcohol that much. You know, and maybe if I, like our band, the other guys still drink on the bus and stuff in front of me. But it's never really, if anything, I'll be honest. Watching the guys drink on the bus at night is great for not wanting to drink <laughs> because I've never once been on the bus and saw the conversation that they're having go, man, I wish I was had a part of that. Right. It's always something I'm like, oh, man, I'm glad I'm going to go to bed right now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to okay. be a part of this. Good, man. And I just want to say it again. I'm glad you're healthy. You look fantastic. Thanks. Um, is it cool if I ask you a question about selling your music catalog? Sure. um, I don't want numbers or anything like that, but over the last five years, there's so many bands that have done that. And I don't know if that's always happened, but it's just now that like the bands are, it's being written up in magazines and websites. It always happens, but I think the amount of people that were selling their, their catalogs was the most it's ever been. And so how does that work? You've written all these songs. A company says we would like to buy these songs and then use them however we want to use them in a Coke commercial or a movie trailer, and you kind of give up the songs. Is that how it works? You can. It's a deal. You can structure a deal any way you you can structure it, and you, both sides have to agree on it. Um, so it's different for everybody. Um, but that essentially what you're saying is usually a, a major part of it. Yeah, you kind of give up your... Um, your rights to it and they sort of own it and could do what they want with it. Um, the reason why I did it. So what I got approached during the pandemic when everybody was selling all their stuff. And I remember thinking like, why are these people selling all their music? Like, yeah. how could they do that? 
And I got approached and I said, nah, I'm not interested. doesn't make any sense to me. And I thought about it and it kind of like, I was sort of in this, something just sort of hit me because I was like, I want to tr try to understand this thing in my mind. If like, what would it feel like if I got rid of all my songs right now? So I sort of like did an experiment in my head of like, I'm just going to just pretend I just got rid of everything. What would I do right now? Like, how do I feel? And all of a sudden I felt really creative because it made me kind of scared. I was like, I have nothing. Like I would have to write, I'd have to start over. And I started right, it was right around the same time that people were asking me to write. And I was really all of a sudden in a different mind frame for some reason. And it felt really good. So I started entertaining it and we started talking to people and seeing what a deal would look like mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And as I was going down the road, I'd gotten to a, a, the place in my mind emotionally that I felt like, you know what, I can let some of these things go because I actually think it'd be good for me because the light of fire inside of me, I don't want to be too comfortable. I feel like that's where artists get in trouble is when they make too much money and they're just too comfortable and they right. get so detached from their who they were when they were writing all that great music. So I felt like if I get rid of everything, I will have to write stuff. And it became exciting. So that was my whole sole purpose of and it. And has it worked? Absolutely. Yeah, I feel so great because of it. Good. I feel Good. so much more creative. And I got really excited about music again. Not that I wasn't excited. It just it made me feel like a teenager again and just nice. had something to prove, I guess. Cause I have to, I, I have to, like, I have no songs at this point. You know, I, I looked at it like, what about the 20 songs for the double album? Well, those are mine. There you go. <laughs> so there you I go. looked there at you it, go. but I didn't have them at the time. I didn't have anything really. I yeah. had a couple of riffs I was working on. That was about it. <laughs> and then once I said in my mind, I'm going to get rid of it. All of a sudden the music started to flow. I looked at it like, there's that great um, HBO special, like when Jerry Seinfeld, when, when Seinfeld was over and he did a, his special call, I'm telling you for the last time, and he retired every joke and he was yes. going to start over. Yes. I looked at it like that, like that. Like, let's just start over. Right. That's the most exciting thing I think I could so do right now. So you feel refreshed, you feel renewed, you feel like you got that edge, the thing in your mind that you need to put to however you write your songs to get it done. Yeah, it's just lighting that fire. That's cool, man. Wow. I'm wondering if someone said, hey, Stark, we want to buy all your Tune On Toast episodes. Mm -hmm. Brett Gurowitz, Fat Mike, Incubus, Paris Jack, Mike Shinoda. You, I, I'd be like, wow, that would feel so weird. But I think I would think like you, like, okay, it's gone. Fresh start. Let's yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It may not be for everybody, but for me, it was exciting. It sounds like it. Yeah. It sounds like, like And you're doing something that with your instruments and some of your gear yeah, as well? it's all part of the same thing. I just, like, I have stuff that sits around, and it's just sort of, like, collect. I just don't want to be a guy who just has all this stuff. I'd rather, I'd just, like, like to start over, you know, in a lot of ways. Right. Um, you don't know a date at all for the double album, right? Not yet. 2023 though this year i don't know yet. Oh, you don't know yet okay i don't know when it could come out okay i i think it could or early 24 but i i don't see either late 23 or early 24 is my guess and how's music doing, music could potentially come out before that though okay oh good how's cone doing cone's the same dave always the same um everybody's great good frank yeah, yeah. is good yeah everybody's great okay all right man well, why don't we wrap it right there? Sure. We got a lot a lot out there. Yeah, that was Good. great. I'm really grateful that you came over today and 
had such a fun, fun chat. It was awesome. Man. I had a great time. Good. Me too. Me too. Uh, Derek and Sum 41 will be on the road with The Offspring and Simple Plan. We will be on the lookout for the double album, The Heaven, <laughs> The Hell, The Ten Songs, The Ten Songs, Fresh Start. All right. Uh, for Derek, I am Stryker. That's been another episode of Tuna on Toast. Happy Snuggles. Bye-bye. Cool. That's another episode of Stryker's Tuna on Toast. Promise it'll get better. Most likely. For sure. <laughs> Maybe.